Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California requires teachers to get vaccinated or get tested. Uh, we think this is the right thing to do, and we think this is a sustainable way to keeping our schools open. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego has new leadership to address homelessness. We are really enhancing our outreach, and so I look forward to working with these key elements with the mayor and team. And a look at how Los Angeles is using tiny houses to give people shelter, and an excerpt from the Cinema Junkie podcast. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California will soon begin a vaccination or test mandate for the state's teachers and school staff. While no effective date has been announced, the requirement would be the first of its kind in the nation. Joining me with more is San Diego Unified Board President Richard Barrera. Richard, welcome. Thanks, Jade. Thanks so much. So do you know when this requirement will go into effect? Well, I think for the state, it's uh, uh, it goes into effect August 12th, uh, which is, I believe, tomorrow. Um, in San Diego Unified, we've actually had this policy in effect uh, since the spring, uh, since we fully reopened on April 12th. So the, the policy, just to clarify, is that staff is required to either show proof of being fully vaccinated or to undergo weekly testing. And so that's, you know, that is now a, a, an order of the California Department of Public Health but again, it's a requirement that we've had for our employees in place since this spring. What are you hearing from teachers about this impending mandate? Oh, I think teachers and staff in general actually support, uh, you know, the mandate. Obviously, people want to know that it's safe, you know, to be at school, to, uh, you know, to, to be on campus, to be in a, on a school bus. 
any, um, you know, time that people are, are uh, near each other. And so I think staff, you know, first of all, you know, when we um, worked with the county and UCSD and others to make vaccines fully accessible to our staff back actually in uh, February and March. Um, we know that, you know, our staff jumped at the opportunity to be vaccinated. So um, we don't have the precise numbers right now, of the percentage of our staff that is vaccinated, but we think it's high. And we certainly, um, you know, what we hear from staff is a general sense of please, you know, implement all health and safety measures um, that keep uh, students and staff safe. Keisha Borden, president of the San Diego Education Association, said in a statement that the significant majority of our members in San Diego and across the country have gotten the vaccine. However, it's important to note that vaccines are a part of a broader strategy, along with COVID testing, masking, and proper indoor ventilation. All of these mitigations are critical if we are going to keep each other safe and protect our schools from severe disruption due to transmission. You know, has there been pushback from the union about vaccine mandates? No, the union has actually, you know, the, t- the teachers union in particular, the members that Keisha represents, Uh, You know, we've been uh, together in uh, developing our health and safety standards at at our schools, um, really from the beginning of the pandemic. We've we've worked as partners, including uh, the development of our testing program. We reached out to UCSD. We were one of the first school districts in California to develop a regular testing program for, uh, for our employees and students. And we did that together with the teachers union. So the unions are very, very supportive of people getting vaccinated. And as Keisha said in her statement of all of the health and safety measures that need to be in place, masking, ventilation of classrooms, testing, and encouragement of vaccines. For teachers and other school employees who aren't vaccinated, uh, what types of exemptions uh, will they need to show to just undergo regular testing instead of getting the vaccine? Well, there would be very few uh, exceptions to uh, to the testing requirements. So, again, if staff is not vaccinated, number one, we highly encourage staff to be vaccinated. Uh, that is the best way to keep uh, yourself safe, but uh, also to keep everybody around you safe. You know, we need to remember that uh, for students who are twelve, uh, who are who are under twelve. They don't even have access to the vaccine yet. So, you know, all of our elementary school students and a large number of our middle school students go to school every day without access yet to the vaccine. So, you know, adults really need to do the responsible thing and get themselves vaccinated. And as this, you know, pandemic evolves and and since the the vaccinated individuals can still contract COVID-19, would teachers who are vaccinated also have to get tested regularly at some point, you think? Uh, so our requirement is that if a teacher who has shown proof of vaccination has symptoms, uh, then we will ask that uh, that that teacher or employee uh, to go go ahead and get vaccinated. And if they can show negative test, if you're not vaccinated, but you we're going to be asking parents to allow their students to be tested regularly. And then if you're symptomatic, then we're going to need you to, you know, to, to get tested, show a negative test result, get past the point of having symptoms 
in order to stay at school. And it's really important, Jade, what we're seeing already with um, some of our South Bay districts uh, that have opened, you know, uh, since July, we are seeing large numbers of both students and staff under COVID protocols that are needing to be sent home, which is highly disruptive. And so, you know, testing again is a way of keeping our students on uh, and staff on campus, because if there has been a positive case and a possible contact, the way to stay at school is to show that you've got a negative test result and that you don't have you don't have symptoms. I've been speaking with San Diego Unified Board President Richard Barrera. Richard, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Jade. The effort to address the hundreds of people living unsheltered on the streets of San Diego has been a chronic problem for the region. And now, a new city official is in charge of finding solutions. Hafsa Keika was installed this week as the head of the city's new Homeless Strategies and Solutions Department. She comes to San Diego after working on homeless issues in several California cities, including Los Angeles. Mayor Todd Gloria appointed Keika after a nationwide search. San Diego has just completed the first phase of a joint city-county homeless outreach program, which helped hundreds into shelters, but has only made a dent in the city's unsheltered population. It's my pleasure to welcome both to Midday Edition. Mayor Todd Gloria, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Maureen. And Hafsa Keika, welcome. Thank you. It's a delight to be on. Now, Mayor Gloria, was last month's city-county homeless outreach program in downtown San Diego, was that as successful as you hoped it would be? I think it exceeded my expectations. Uh, Let's be clear. It was only a month of focused outreach in one zip code in our city. But Maureen, in that short period of time, we were able to transition over 470 San Diegans from the streets and into housing. That's what is able to be done over a short period of time in just one corner of our community. Think about what we can do on a citywide or regionwide basis with similar effort. That's precisely why we stood up an independent department of homelessness strategies and solutions and why we've recruited someone of Hofsa's caliber to help lead that effort. Uh, This cannot be one and done. We have to persist. uh, And that's what this new leadership at the city is intending to do. There are still over a thousand people on the streets of downtown San Diego. What were some of the biggest problems encountered in getting more unsheltered people off the streets? I mean, the the challenges of homelessness really is it's the most complex problem that we face. You know, it involves the individual circumstances that a person's unsheltered status caused to global macro level issues of income inequality and a mental health crisis, a global pandemic. All of these things are conspiring uh, to make the circumstances on our city streets and the streets of other American cities uh, get worse. Uh, What we're choosing to do is to not accept that, uh, to say that we are going to do everything we possibly can to transition people from the streets and into housing. And I will tell you, this will not be the easiest thing we've ever done, uh, but it is doable. And you correctly noted this was this first ever city-county collaboration and intensive outreach effort. And that collaboration yielded results that, again, exceeded my personal expectations and I believe will help meet the expectations of San Diegans who, frankly, are so frustrated by the circumstances on our streets that they are craving the change, change that I believe Hofstra will bring with us to the city's, uh, to the city administration. And Mayor, I believe the second phase in the outreach plan is underway. What is that focused on? That is focused on building upon the collaboration between the city and county, this time with the creation of what we're calling safe haven 
shelters. These are shelters with more services than your traditional shelters. So you're probably familiar, your listeners are familiar with the sprung uh, tent shelters that we've had in our city for a very long time. Those serve a useful purpose for, for many folks, but for people with more acute mental and substance abuse issues, they often aren't an appropriate placement. Uh, neither is permanent supportive housing, at least not initially. These safe harbor uh, shelters are intended to have a higher level of care in order to help address the uh, root causes of some one's individual homeless circumstance, uh, and then be able to graduate them into a more secure, longer-term housing situation. We're currently uh, looking at spaces with the county uh, to see which location could fit and which one we could staff appropriately. I anticipate being able to have uh, more information for your listeners and the broader San Diego community in the coming weeks. And Hafsa Keika, what will your role be in this city-county outreach effort? Yes, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I'm so honored to be part of uh, mayor's administration and to be appointed to lead this very important role. It is really important that we look at it from both an internal and external perspective. Internally, as the mayor alluded, we are going to go ahead and create an entire department and actually expand the department to add additional qualified individuals who will help execute programs and services from a best practices perspective. And these best practices practices include housing first, harm reduction, motivational interviewing, the social work key skills needed to be able to engage persons experiencing homelessness. That's number one. Number two is also really to uh, look at this historical context that we have, uh, the alignment of working with partners and the community, uh, county, the housing commission, and many other community agencies that can come together to really look at the regional collaboration and coordination that impacts our greater community at large. Uh, so I'm very excited to uh, go ahead and, and execute and implement uh, the alignment of the vision that we just talked about. Now, Hafsa, the mayor has said that you intend to view the issue of homelessness through an equity lens. What does that mean? Absolutely. It is so important to look at person-centered approach, which is a best practice in social work. We know that the complexities within the homeless infrastructure, the ecosystem, it's not monolithic. Every individual comes unique and every individual has to have the ability to be addressed um, specifically to their unique needs. So equity includes making sure that we're creating access uh, and inclusivity for specific subpopulations. We know that the homeless community can potentially have individuals that um, have been marginalized in other regard, whether it's racial equity, whether it is um, looking at gender equity, whether it's looking at um, the status quo as it relates to class and age. So it's really important to make sure that we're looking at ability, disability, all of those factors as we try to enhance and make appropriate the access of care for every individual within the homeless ecosystem. Mayor Gloria, Governor Newsom recently said that it's not acceptable for homeless people to be living on streets and sidewalks. And now many took that as a political shift by Newsom, who is the former mayor of San Francisco, where many people live unsheltered on the streets. Do you think the tide is turning politically and that Californians have had enough of tent cities in their downtowns? I don't think that's a change in circumstance. I don't think it's ever been acceptable to have people living on our streets. Certainly not acceptable to me as mayor. I don't think it's ever been acceptable to our governor. Uh, but I do think the political rhetoric, particularly around the recall, necessitated the governor to make that statement, just to be clear to all involved. 
um, how that's actually uh, executed upon, I think is a key difference. I think we know uh, that we have to provide more housing and the governor has been an advocate for that. I've been an advocate for that. We're working on plans to increase the amount of housing in our community. Uh, but when you say that it's unacceptable, it's not that their existence as human beings is unacceptable. It's their presence and having to habitate our streets, our sidewalks, uh, our canyons is unacceptable. And the question for all of us is, well, how do you fix it? And the solution is not through incarceration or through ignoring the matter or simply shifting people to other communities. It's to address the problem, the underlying issues using national best practices and ultimately, Maureen, building a lot more housing that is affordable really to everybody, but particularly to those who are extremely low and low income individuals like those who are on our streets. What is on our streets today in California and in many major American cities is unacceptable. The question is, are we willing to do something about it? What I'm saying very clearly is that my administration will do something about this. Hafsa, what vision do you have for a San Diego that is without large numbers of homeless people living on the streets? And what I mean is, what, how do you see vulnerable people being taken care of and where will they be housed? Echoing what the mayor just mentioned, first and foremost, we really need to look at coordinated outreach, that first touch for individuals or persons experiencing homelessness. Um, oftentimes it's about access. So we coming to them, our outreach workers going to persons experiencing homelessness, not creating a barrier of transportation or whatnot. That's first and foremost. And really looking at a broad spectrum of establishing rapport and engagement, not a one and done. It's called progressive engagement, engaging with best practices like motivational interviewing, uh, critical time intervention. It's really important to incorporate these social work aspects, working with licensed clinical therapists, partnering with um, county as well as other nonprofit providers in terms of really helping that person with that person-centered approach, tapping into some of the systemic um, uh, systemic infrastructure, looking at the mental health um, uh infrastructure, looking at the medical and substance abuse, uh, looking at uh, the, as the mayor had said, um, legalities. Every person comes with their unique uh, challenges. And so how can we ensure that they have a nexus to be able to get housing, whether it's short-term housing through shelter or whether it's permanent supportive housing, tapping into the coordinated entry system, working with the regional task force, really creating those strong collaborations where communication is key. So I think that being able to keep provision of services with a compassion and equitable vision at the forefront and then really implementing some of the systemic um, changes is going to be able to create those outcomes and successes. Well, I want to thank you both. I've been speaking with San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and the new head of San Diego's Homelessness Strategies and Solutions Department, Hafsa Keika. Thank you both. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Faced with a national homelessness crisis that grew worse during the pandemic, cities across the country are opening so-called tiny home villages for the unhoused. Often placed on vacant, city-owned parcels of land, the villages consist of collections of small, modular aluminum shelters. Think fancy garden sheds that can house one or two people each. Los Angeles has been especially aggressive in opening tiny home villages, and the California Report recently visited one in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. Behind fences and privacy screens blocking views from the street, the homes are partially painted in soft pastel colors and arranged in neat rows with walking paths between them. It gives the place a kind of summer camp feel. Julio Paz is the program manager here and showed us inside one tiny home. So inside, every unit has an AC unit like this. They have their outlets. This right here is a light. Shelving. Shelving, right? Um, there's two beds in each one. That you could fold up here. Yeah, so this, these are folded up. So right now, if it's a single individual, we're just kind of keeping them uh, in one cabin due to the COVID restrictions and everything, right? It's uh, better than a tent. Way better than a tent, especially in this heat. Like other tiny home villages, the 60 residents living here are also provided with shower and laundry facilities, common areas for eating and socializing, a dog run for those with pets, and Wi-Fi. On-site mental health and addiction treatment services are also available. Before moving here, 44-year-old Damian Brown was sleeping on the sidewalk a few blocks away, where he had no protection from the elements. I was just on a sleeping bag on the ground. Really? Nothing I, nothing to cover you? No, I had covers. I had one blanket. So how does this compare? Oh, this is <laughs> like the Ritz, man. They got all your needs taken care of. You really don't, you know, want for anything here. But in exchange, residents like Brown have to follow some rules. There's a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. A security guard wants people before they come in. And drugs and alcohol have to be left outside in storage lockers. And you don't feel like, you know... You're under somebody's thumb here. At first I did. At first you did. Yeah, at first because I wasn't used to it, that structure again. So it took me a minute. Along with Los Angeles, tiny home villages have opened in the city of Riverside and in Sonoma County. Oakland is building its first village, and the mayor of Sacramento has announced plans to build villages in his city. Why the sudden interest? Desperation to find fast, if partial, solutions to homelessness, says Rowan Van Sleeve of the nonprofit Hope of the Valley, which operates the tiny home village we visited. This site here took about 87 days from the day the tractors first rolled in to set the site up to the day they gave us the keys to start welcoming guests. And that's absolutely really warp speed compared to a lot of other housing projects that go up. Some of our bridge housing projects take over two years. These sites can be done in 90 days. But there are criticisms of tiny home villages. Chief among them is the fact that tiny homes aren't really homes at all. They're short-term emergency shelters and not permanent housing. The people living in the villages are supposed to transition to long-term housing within three to six months. But given rental cost realities in California, some tiny home village residents like Alexander Blake say that's probably not possible. I think I'm going to be stuck here for years is what I really think because... 
our housing is insane. Uh, the the prices keep going up. With the money I'd make from a disability, it's it's only seven hundred dollars. So there's not much you can get in LA for seven hundred dollars a month if you even spend all of your money on that. Hope of the Valley's Rowan Van Sleeve says his nonprofit, in cooperation with the city of Los Angeles, will do everything it can to help tiny home residents find permanent housing. Meanwhile, Hope of the Valley is busily planning more tiny home villages in and around LA. All of our tiny home sites, all seven of them that are guaranteed to open this year, we will have approximately a thousand beds across the San Fernando and Antelope Valley inside tiny home cabins. And Van Sleeve predicts that tiny home villages that open this year will still be needed and filled with homeless residents for at least another decade. That was Saul Gonzalez reporting for the California Report. It must have felt like old home week for many skateboarders at the Tokyo Olympics. The first ever Olympic park skateboarding event included many skateboarders who live in San Diego or who were born here or trained here or all of the above. Gold medalist 18-year-old Keegan Palmer represented Australia, but he's a San Diego native, as is bronze medalist Corey Juno. It's been a long journey from skateboarding's early days to Olympic gold, And to get a perspective on that journey, we welcome one of skateboarding's first innovators, inventor and entrepreneur, Frank Nasworthy. Frank, welcome to the program. Well, it's good to be here, Maureen. What was it like for you, you who saw the beginnings of skateboarding here in the 70s, to see the sport in the Olympics? What I saw were some very talented skateboarders skating on magnificent terrain that everybody wishes they could be afforded. And seeing that the same joy that they were having that everybody that enjoys the sport being at YMCA's or on the street or in your driveway or wherever they are have. And it was really great to see it put on an international level in a way that people could really understand the the dynamics of skateboarding. And can you tell us a little bit about the history of skateboarding, especially about the connection between skateboarding and surfing? It's complicated. I think as a a youngster, I I was uh, 12 years old in the era of Beach Boys and that era of surfing. We were out picking apart metal skates, putting them on two by fours, trying to find something to emulate what we saw in the media. Always for me, skateboarding was a substitute for surfing. I think the similarities are are very strong between the two and skateboarding extends further to allow that sort of exhilaration and playing with gravity and rolling and such to people all over the world, not just those fortunate enough to live on a coast. Now, Frank, you made a major innovation in those early days of skateboarding by introducing a new type of polyurethane wheel. How did that change skateboarding? I liken it to if you want to drive a car with a wooden wheel or you drive a car with a rubber wheel. Literally, that would be almost the difference. How do today's skateboards that are even more innovative, how do they stack up against those early models? Um, There's some big improvements, but overall, it's the same tracks. It's, It's the same terrain and height off the ground. 
it was amazing to me that 50 years later, it was the same form factor size wheel that they're using now as we did back then. The wheels are a little bit better. Manufacturing processes have gotten better and the wheels have no sharp edges. And they, But we're literally looking at pretty much from 25 feet away, the same look. If you get real close, some, a lot of the stuff is made a lot better today. But um, the position the skateboarders are relative to the ground is re- relatively unchanged. Now, you organized the first skateboarding competition in Encinitas and, of course, as the home to many professional and Olympic skateboarders. Can you tell us what that first competition was like? I was a promoter. The YMCA in Encinitas was the one that that organized that first contest. And they're actually the same organization here in Encinitas that has some of these really advanced skate parks and trains for skaters today. But this was a skate, a skate contest that consisted of a small slalom course for speed. You started out on a little hill, rode down a little hill into an area and zipped between cones for timing and who was first and freestyle. The freestyle is very much different. And 50 years ago, people were doing like gymnastics on skateboards, you know, handstands and hands on your board and sitting in an L shape and things like that, much like you would see gymnasts doing. Whereas now it's more of a dynamic skateboarding and getting aerials and such. But at the time it was slalom and freestyle held in a parking lot of a, of a community pool. So our, our park, our park took place, um, on a small community street next to the community pool where we, and we used the parking lot and the small hill, a small hill around it to have the train that we needed to have a contest. Now the Olympics featured two skateboarding events, park and street. Is it fair to say San Diego was better known for park skateboarding more than street? Um, hard to say because, um, for myself, I was a street skater. I was not jumping up and sliding down railings. We were what we call soul skating, taking a hill and slaloming back and forth as a skier may do on a mountain. But what San Diego does is it has it has a tremendous amount of uh, manufactured terrain. And I think that that's one of the reasons that there's many skaters attracted to the area because there's so much both public and private um radical terrain to skate that was made for skating and not just terrain that just happens to be amenable. Now, skateboarding is and always has been dominated by young white guys. And I'm wondering, is that demographic changing? Is the sport opening up? I think that is that is not a reflection of what's happening in the world. Um, uh, after skateboarding, I was fortunate enough to become an engineer and traveled around the world and it always amazed me wherever I would go into into developing areas of the world where there were skaters skating um, sidewalks and streets wherever you go um, all colors and all sizes and it's something that I think is much more universal than people realize. The guys that won medals at the Olympics all talked about the special vibe that comes from the skateboarding community in San Diego. Can you describe that? What is it about San Diego that makes it such a skateboarding hub? Um, well, the weather is one. I've been places where um, rain takes its toll on the amount of skating running you can do in any given day. So, um, But I think that um it's a place where there were a lot of innovative people and people doing things that other people hadn't discovered yet. Skateboarding is a global phenomenon. And that, to me, that's what the Olympics did. It really um, put skateboarding on a global stage. 
And I think you're going to see the results of that in the coming years. I've been speaking with one of skateboarding's first innovators, Frank Nasworthy. Frank, thank you so much for speaking with us. Been my pleasure and congratulations to all the skateboarders in the Olympics. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. In honor of Indian Independence Day, August 15th, this month's Cinema Junkie podcasts are dedicated to celebrating Bollywood. In this excerpt from Hooray for Bollywood, Part 1, Cinema Junkie host Beth Alcamando speaks with MovieWallah's podcasters Yazdi Pithalva and Rashmi Gandhi to define what is Bollywood cinema and take a look at its golden era. So what do you see are the defining qualities of a Bollywood movie? What do they look like? Uh, you know, are they packaged around stars? How would you kind of point out the, the things, the elements that have to be there to define a Bollywood film? It has to be a musical. There has to be musical numbers, although there have been, you know, in the last couple of decades, good Bollywood movies without any, any music in them. But predominantly good musicals. They do have big action stars or big film stars in general. There's always been a very clan-like Indian cinema royalty, a, a dynasty, and you know, their kids and kids have continued to be in cinema. Big name actors, a lot of music, usually what we call an item number, which is, you know, a song picturized on somebody who's not a main character in the movie, but they're just there to provide the glitz and the, the chatka or uh, give spice. The, yeah, the spice to the whole movie. And for the longest time, Hollywood movies did have a formula. At, at the risk of sounding repetitive, it's this whole package. There's a little bit of fighting, you know, a little bit of action, a little bit of comedy. Oh, and it has to tug on your heartstrings. I mean, it, it's very manipulatively created to kind of tug at you and you know there there is a lot of uh, built-in morality which goes with a lot of uh, Bollywood films like you know you your mom comes before anything else you know your your greatest responsibility is to your parents and you know there's there's a lot of old school morality which which is tied with Bollywood films and frankly some of it has been damaging over the years but so be it it's that package. Yeah, I feel like inherently they used to be about good versus evil. There's always a really good guy and then there's a really bad guy. Forbidden love or unrequited love that adds angst. I feel like they were a good mechanism to overcome discussion about caste or wealth or gender. Gender, not so much. Maybe now in recent years, it's more about gender. But um, definitely this kind of cast or boy meets girl boy and girl shouldn't be together and how they fight for their love there was a lot of that and when we use the term bollywood cinema this is not covering 
all the films that are made in India, there was a lot of this kind of international art house mm -hmm. films that were started to get popular like late 50s and definitely in the 60s. So how do you define kind of the difference between those kind of things or what other kind of cinema are you finding in India that is maybe overshadowed by the term Bollywood? There's always been alternative cinema, Indian cinema, I think as early as the 50s, 60s. And when I was growing up, there was no real difference between the two. I mean, it, you knew that there was, you know, this big flashy movie which is coming on with the big names and big directors and so forth. And then there were smaller movies which kind of tackled more socialist uh, ideals. They were kind of more neorealistic, if you will. I mean, uh, Satyajit Ray's films, you know, were they were almost documentary-like. They were very quiet, very subtle, just just uh, observing life around the camera wouldn't move too much. But that was also part of cinema. It never felt like outsider to me. It just felt like something else. Yeah, and I think inherently, Beth, one of the things that strikes me about Bollywood is ultimately it's about escapism. Mm -hmm. You have a billion people in a subcontinent and then, you know, billions of people who are of Indian origin outside of India, all wanting to escape and connect. And so I think Bollywood movies represent this ability to just sink into another world and escape. Hence the big dance numbers and music and people dancing in the aisles even, along with the song. not uncommon at all or people just literally jumping out of their seats and like you know clapping and you know while, while the song screaming and and yeah. that's that's commonplace all the time you know exactly to what rashmi said it's the great equalizer in india you know india has always had this caste system the very rich and the very poor and whatever but the typical bollywood fare is made to kind of serve everyone it it kind of meets you know it crosses all those genres and it's tickets are relatively cheap so no matter whether you are very rich or very poor you are able to get lost uh, for a period of time and that's why you get this whole package because you're paying some amount of money and they want to put you in an air-conditioned cinema in the middle of sweltering heat and give you escapism for for three hours that's also the reason why i think the movies tend to be so long because people want their money's worth Plus, you've got to fit in, in two reincarnations somewhere. <laughs> yes, and and one at least one uh, intermission. There there were a couple of movies which had two intermissions. They were so long. Oh wow! Two lots of samosas. <laughs> yes. Yum. Yes. Uh, Mera Naam Joker and Sangam. There were two movies which came out in the seventies. They had two intermissions. Wow. Wow. Well, the way you describe that, it makes me think of Shakespeare in the sense of, you know, he had to please the rich people in the boxes and the groundlings on the floor, and he had to have humor that played low and humor that played high and, you know, really reach across all sorts of different social levels. India was a British colony when films first began. So what was early Indian cinema like, and when did the idea of Bollywood really come into play? 
So, um, you know, the first silent movie, as um, I think you mentioned, Yazdi, was Raja Harish Chandra, which was in 1913. And I think um, most of those early films were very much based on, you know, the holy book, the Mahabharata, epic battles, good versus evil. And I think once we get into the talkies, it changes things a little bit. You know, later on, we have... Between the 30s and 40s, you know, you've got the Great Depression, World War II, Indian independence, partition. These all, all create for a very rich tapestry of different types of movies. Bollywood, for me, the term Bollywood, I feel, comes around, you know, the 40s to 60s, maybe a little bit later when you've got those established studios that Yazdi was talking about and established names in cinema like the Guru Dats, the um, Raj Kapoor's... Um, and then a whole host of films that come out of that era. You know, during the time that India was going through its battle to kind of get independence from British colonialism, film actually played a very, very big role in terms of kind of putting forth these patriotic ideals. I don't think the fact that India was colonized by the British directly resulted in the Britishization, if you will, of Indian cinema. Indian cinema remained always very Indian and they were always built around Indian mores and, you know, uh, Indian sensibility. And so, if anything, they kind of helped create this social change within the country, a sense of, you know, we need to be independent and get out of it. So I, th I think from that perspective, it helped out. That was Cinema Junkie host Beth Agamondo speaking with Yazdi Pathalva and Rashmi Gandhi. Hooray for Bollywood Part 1 is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find a list of recommended films as well as the link for the new Geek Gourmet video at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. San Diego synth-pop band Glass Spells just released a new album written and recorded during the pandemic by sending tracks back and forth between band members. Glass Spells will return to a local stage with an album release show at Soda Bar this Saturday. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans recently spoke with the band and brings you this interview. For San Diego band Glass Spells, their new album was made in true work-from-home fashion. Vocalist Tanya Costello laid down her tracks from her tiny walk-in closet. I recorded myself um, in my closet, which was so weird, but also I feel um, because I didn't have anyone listening to me record, it allowed me to be a lot more um, expressive and less shy about trying new things. So, um, I really experimented a lot with my voice in it and different just tones and trying to get like the, the true emotion of the songs out into, into the record. Anthony Ramirez started Glass Spells in 2014 from his hometown in Calexico. It's informed by his punk roots, but also by a desire to combine that edge with electronic and synth music. 
Eventually, the band broke up when Ramirez moved to San Diego and the other band members were living in different cities. Ramirez wasn't done with glass spells, however, and neither were the fans. When we weren't doing anything and the band members were like, oh, we, we can't do it anymore. We kept getting show offers. We kept getting like, hey, can glass spells play here? Can you play there? Um, like we got asked to play House of Blues in Anaheim and like, like just a bunch of shows <laughs> were like a bunch of opportunities and we, we just couldn't never play. Ramirez reached out to Costello, who grew up in Escondido, to join the band in 2019. They began writing new songs right away, releasing the Mirrors EP in June of 2020. Glass Spell's sound has evolved over the years, and a significant part of that is Costello's influence on lyrics. Shattered is their new album, just released August 6th, and it feels like they stuck the landing. It's lush, complex synth pop that doesn't compromise the bones of Ramirez's songwriting or his artistic vision. Still there, a danceable beat, relatable loneliness, a sense of urgency and heartbreak, crystalline intoxicating vocals, and then something vampiric like glass spells is handcrafted to listen to at night. Ramirez said he was inspired by the idea of horror and sci-fi soundtracks, as well as that nighttime essence, and even the moody high style of a fashion show. The creative heart of their songwriting also found an isolation-savvy work-from-home groove. Ramirez would compose a song, then send it to Costello, often with a word or two hint at what inspired him, but sometimes just a working title. For the third track on the album, the titular Shattered, Ramirez named the file he sent to Costello Shattered Romance, which ended up as a bridge in the song. I decided to make the bridge say, leave your lust behind shattered romance. Um, like it's shattered, you know, don't go back to something that it, you know, won't do you any good, uh, that will end up hurting you in the end. Sonically, the track is infectious. It has a distinctly 80s sound with distorted pitches, dreamy melodies, and driving, fizzing beats. In No One to Trust, deeper in the album, there's a sadness and loneliness almost betrayed by the boppiness of the tune. These upbeat stylings make the sadness feel even more detached and in that way, more tragic, like a pop hit from The Cure or Chromatics. We are 
after a long pandemic year of no shows, and they'll make a long-awaited return to local audiences this weekend with an album release at Soda Bar on Saturday. While Ramirez and Costello were able to thrive creatively during the pandemic shutdown, performing is essential to glass spells. I, I feel like I, I need to keep playing for some reason. I don't know. If, like if I'm not playing, I feel like I'm not doing something. The whole point of me trying to make music is I want to make music that makes people feel something. I just I just want people to have that tune that they go to and they're like, this song gets me. That was Tanya Costello and Anthony Ramirez of Glass Bell speaking with KPBS arts editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Glass Bells will perform an album release show Saturday at Soda Bar, where proof of vaccination or negative COVID test is required. A link to the full album is on our website at kpbs.org. I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.